Broadcast friends, welcome back to Corporate Report Radio, and you are tuned into RepublicBroadcasting.org on this Wednesday evening, the 28th of March, 2012, the 29th of March for me here in Japan, and tonight, as every night, we are broadcasting to you from the sunny climes of Western Japan, so once again, thank you for tuning in for tonight's broadcast, and it's something that we've been going over quite a bit recently, and something that unfortunately continues to unfold like a nightmare before us, as we see stories like China to boost intellectual property rights, according to a report by the Toronto Sun. We have uh, the Globe and Mail reporting, Canadian court clears way to trademark sounds. And uh, we even have some, perhaps, bright spots of uh, rays of hope that the, uh, the Supreme Court has thrown out human gene patents. But yes, intellectual property, trademarks, patents, copyrights are more and more becoming part of the collective cultural consciousness, especially, of course, in the wake of the SOPA and PIPA bills and the protests that surrounded that, and the latest forms of Internet censorship that are coming down the pike. And as we were talking about earlier, coming just this spring, in fact, the uh, the I- ISPs are going to start monitoring traffic for the RIAA and MPAA to cut off anyone who dares to download any of these uh, uh, copyrighted Hollywood material and all of that sort of thing. So it's certainly a a hot-button issue right now, and that's why it is a great pleasure to have on the line with us tonight for the broadcast, Stefan Kinsella of StefanKinsella.com. He is the founder and executive editor of Libertarian Papers, the founder and director of the Center for the Study of Innovative Freedom, and he's a member of the editorial board of Reason Papers. He's also a registered patent attorney and a former adjunct professor at South Texas College of Law. He's published a number of articles and books on IP law and international law and the application of libertarian principles to legal topics. So, Stefan Kinsella, it is a great pleasure to have you on the program. Thank you so much for joining us tonight. I'm so glad to be here, James. Thank you. Excellent. Well, I, I gave sort of the bullet point intro, but perhaps you can tell us a little bit more about your background and how it is you came to to take up the intellectual property uh, from a libertarian perspective, mental. Well, I've been interested in human liberty and free market economics uh, for quite a while, um, 20, 30 years now, uh, and I've been an attorney for about 20 years. And when I started practicing patent law and copyright law, my interest in trying to find a way to justify these fields of of law in libertarian terms, um, you know, increased, and so I, I I looked into it with a lot of interest. And the more I looked, the more I realized this is nothing but a, um, a a false field of law that actually should not be law and is causing lots of problems. Well, I think we are seeing that unfold, as I was uh, pointing to. But uh, I would imagine that when you first started getting into this topic, it wasn't exactly the, the hot-button issue or it wasn't ga- uh, garnering that much attention as it is in this day and age. Um, can you talk about how this topic has really changed over the years that you've been working with it? Yeah, I started <clears throat> practicing around 1992 myself in it, and I would say back at the time it was more of an academic um, exercise. And so in the mid to late 90s, I started writing a few articles about, you know, the sort of the theoretical problems with it, you know, explaining that patent and copyright are not really compatible with regular property rights. But no one really understood them. No one really cared. And uh, I wrote sort of a, a big article in 
around 2000, 2001 to get it out of my system. Um, and uh, still, it didn't get a lot of attention, this issue. It was, it was you know, under the surface. But I think with the Internet becoming so much more popular in 1995, you know, the, inter- the IP issues started becoming more important and getting a lot more attention in the late 90s and then in the 2000s. Well, talk about getting in on a very important topic on the ground floor. So certainly you have been here for what has turned out to be and is still quite a wild ride in terms of uh, where intellectual property and the debate about it is going. On that note, let's take a short break. and We'll be right back to continue our conversation with Stefan Kinsella right after this. We are here on Corbett Report Radio tonight on Republic Broadcasting going over the sticky, thorny issue of intellectual property, which is really busting through that uh, collective consciousness and really becoming a part of our everyday reality as we see the nightmare of Internet censorship beginning to unfold in the name of this paradigm of intellectual property. So tonight we are talking to Stefan Kinsella of StefanKinsella.com, who has been writing about this quite extensively for a number of years, so it's great to to get you on the program to pick your brain about this uh, issue. But as you were mentioning, intellectual property uh, has to be distinguished from traditional property rights. Obviously, there's quite a fundamental difference in what we're talking about here. So, Stefan, perhaps you can uh, talk a little bit about property rights in general and the libertarian take on them, and then we can differentiate that from intellectual property. Oh, sure. Um, And and let me just uh, start off by explaining that um, you know, this this point of view is a pro-property rights point of view. Um, a lot of people think that if you're opposed to patent and copyright, it's because you're opposed to capitalism or uh, modern commerce or profit or money or innovation or ideas. But that's actually not the case, at least for libertarians. We are strongly in favor of the free market, freedom, property rights, the profit mode of capitalism, innovation, and all these things. And it's actually because we like these things that uh, a growing number of us have become completely opposed to the idea of the government handing out monopolies that basically protect people from competition. In fact, that's actually the opposite of what the free market is about. Um, if you If you step back and think about it, the purpose of property rights the only reason we have property rights is because we live in a certain type of world where a lot of the things that we need to use to live are what we call scarce resources, right? Like uh, land and food and cars and houses and animals and even our bodies. And the nature of these things is such that only one person can use these things at a time. And unless you have a rule saying who gets to use the thing, then you're not going to be able to use the things you need to use peacefully. You're going to have fighting and squabbling and battling over it. So the entire purpose of property is a response to the fundamental fact of scarcity in the real world. And we realize that you know only one person can use this thing, so let's assign it to one person so at least he can use it peacefully and productively, and then he can trade with other people, and everyone else can be secure in their property, 
and they can have peaceful, productive activity, and everyone benefits from this. And then we have the division of labor and free markets and then eventually modern economies. So property rights are a response to the problem of scarcity, but ideas and information are not like these other things. This is what we use in our to guide our action. This is what civilization is about. The reason we have progress over time is because the body of human knowledge gradually expands. And we're always learning from each other, emulating each other, copying each other, uh, competing with each other, improving on what other people do, remixing other people's ideas, transmitting these ideas down the generations to others. Every innovator, every artist, every creator is in a way uh, improving on or adding to incrementally what they learn from others. You know, the first painter, I mean, the, you know, famous painters learned their techniques from others and maybe modified it. Um, every inventor learned things from the culture and from history and from human knowledge. Um, it's actually a good thing that we can learn from each other and emulate. And in the, in the free market, that's called competition. So if you see someone um, come up with a brand new idea for you know a, a new uh, grocery store with wider aisles that pleases the customers. He's going to have more profit, and he can't help but send that profit signal out into the to the economy, and people will notice that. He might not like it, but that's going to invite competition, and gradually over time, his profit margin will be reduced because he'll face competition, unless he innovates and improves and services the customer in better and better ways. And this is why competition is good for the consumer, is good for productivity, and creates wealth. But every time it comes into the market, they face the prospect of competition. Uh, and this is exactly the case of someone who, who part of their product has to do with invention, let's say. Uh, a new drug or a new car design or a new engine, it's really no different. They are trying to find a way to sell products or to make a profit by selling a service or, or a product to consumers. And if part of the added value is that this product is more efficient or works better or has a better design, that's fine. But they're sending this information out into the world, and they cannot help but, you know, they have to expect that people are going to see that and notice it and start competing with them. But what they do is they go to the government and they say, no, please give us, you know, a 20 year monopoly of a window of protection where we can, we can charge the consumer whatever we want because no one can compete with us. Um, and this is exactly what patents are. They are government grants of monopoly privilege that protect people from competition. And why advocates of the free market think this is a free market thing is, is a mystery because it's actually the antithesis of the free market. And I think it's important to understand that this is an idea with a, a long pedigree. I mean, it's not something that we're just talking about these days. And, of course, it was hardwired into the Constitution itself with the so-called copyright clause of Article 1, Section 8. So what really were the, uh, the, the founding fathers thinking when they were trying to include this government-granted monopoly in the Constitution? Yeah, so th they are basically just implementing... Um, uh, a practice that had been going on for a couple of hundred years in Europe, England and, and parts of Europe, uh, which is rooted in mercantilism and thought control. Patents, of course, originated in governments granting monopolies to favored court cronies and 
and others. Um, you know, like you have the right to sell leather in this area. You have the right to sell wine in exchange. Maybe you'll help us collect taxes on the sale of this good, um, and we'll protect you from your competitors. So it had nothing to do with innovation originally. It was just uh, government handing out favors. And then copyright originated in the government and the church using control of the scribes and the printing presses through various uh, guilds and, and monopoly companies like the Stationers Company uh, to prevent unauthorized books from being published that might spread ideas that, that the government and the church didn't want spread. Um, and these gradually evolved into the modern copyright and patent systems with the Statute of Anne in 1709 in England, which was copyright, and the Statute of Monopolies. They actually used truth in advertising back then. They actually labeled it honestly. Um, they called it the Statute of Monopolies in 1623 in Britain. Um, so when the, when the founding fathers started the, uh, you know, wrote the Constitution, they kind of had a hunch. Well, maybe we can use this limited monopoly grant to encourage artistic works and innovation. Now, nowadays, you'll hear people repeat it as a matter of as a matter of faith that everyone knows that you have to have patent and copyright to have innovation, and that it stimulates a great deal of innovation more than we would have otherwise. Um, well, first of all. The founding fathers couldn't have known this because there were no detailed empirical studies and econ econometric studies and things. They just had a hunch at best. And in the 200-plus years since, there have been no studies proving their original hunch was correct. In fact, the studies that have been produced, there's dozens and dozens of them. All are either ambiguous or they kind of say, we just can't figure this out. Um, or they say, it appears to us that these systems are costing the economy billions and billions of dollars a year or trillions of dollars uh, per decade. Well, as, as you point out in Against Intellectual Property, perhaps one of the seminal works on this uh, issue, I mean, the issue isn't even one of, uh, you know, promoting the happiness. It isn't a utilitarian thing of, of saying, well, this promotes progress. <laughs> it, the issue is really, does the government ever have a right to step in and violate people's rights in the names of promoting progress or whatever other abstract euphemisms they want to apply to it. No, I agree completely. Um, I will give the Founding Fathers credit. They didn't, they didn't really claim or believe that this was a natural right. They put it in there as sort of a, um, a temporary measure to stimulate. You know, it was an interference in the market, but this is why that originally copyright and patent lasted for about 14 years. It was just a temporary government interference in the market to achieve some kind of government goal, which was a meddling in the market to you know, try to get what they wanted. Um, but nowadays, people are so used to equating the Constitution with what rights are, primarily because the Constitution is far better than the system we have now, which is a big deviation from it. So it's, it's a little bit natural to equate the Constitution with kind of a quasi-libertarian ideal, although I think that's a mistake. But I can understand why they do. I mean, personally, I think the Constitution is nothing but a centralizing coup, a grab, a centralizing grab of power, and a huge mistake and a huge retrogression from the Articles of Confederation. Um, it's a big, you know, compromising document with lots of uh, unlibertarian ideas built into it uh, and ambiguities. Uh, but be that as it may, people nowadays want us to get back to that because it would be an improvement. 
So they will basically equate whatever's in the Constitution with some kind of capitalist or free market or natural rights type of ideal. And it's just not the case. I mean, slavery is not natural part of natural rights, but that was authorized by the Constitution. The income tax is authorized by the Constitution. War is authorized. Conscription is authorized by the Constitution. Um, so we cannot just assume that just because the Founding Fathers put this copyright and patent clause in there, that it's part of natural rights. Very well said, and a very important point as more and more people clamor for a return to constitutional government, they should probably keep in mind that a lot of the Founding Fathers were against the Constitution, were anti-federalists. But at any rate, let's uh, let's take a short break, and we'll be right back with Stefan Kinsella, stefankinsella.com. If you want to get in on tonight's conversation, 1-800-313-9443. Welcome back to the broadcast, friends. Tonight we're talking to Stefan Kinsella, stefankinsella.com, and the author of numerous works on the subject of intellectual property, including one of the seminal works on the issue against intellectual property, but also many other papers and articles, including why intellectual property is not genuine property, intellectual property and economic development, rethinking IP, understanding IP, uh, reducing the cost of IP law, uh, many, many, many other works besides all of those available from stefankinsella.com. So I hope you will go there and uh, check out the link from the show notes in today's episode, corporatereport.com slash radio to those works. But uh, Stefan, returning to our conversation, perhaps we should start getting into some of the arguments that tend to be raised in the conversation about intellectual property and some of the misgivings people have about the idea that, uh, that uh, there are there, there is this against IP uh, sentiment out there. And let's start turning to the uh, the idea that has been drilled into our heads uh, quite a bit of late, that the idea of stealing someone's intellectual property is the same thing as stealing someone's actual physical property in the sense of uh, someone sharing their their copy of a work uh, of, of a fiction or what what have you is the same thing as uh, going in and stealing that from the author itself, which is a problematic concept for a number of reasons. But perhaps we can get into some of those types of misgivings. Of um, uh, um, a dishonesty in the labeling used by proponents of IP. Uh, number one, they've stopped calling them monopolies, which they used to. As I mentioned earlier, they you know the statute of monopolies is where patents came from. So. Uh, the, the proponents and the, the enactors of these things used to be honest about it, um, but then they call them patents and copyrights. And other types, which are more minor, like trade secrets and trademarks, etc., are also considered to be IP. But initially, these were not grouped together. They were just separate legal systems or, or legal rules, bodies of law. So the government allows patents and copyrights to, through two different statutory regimes, um, even in the beginning of the U.S., you know, they were just called patent and copyright. And people were sort of nervous about these things because they know they're monopolies, and that's why they limited them to a, a limited number of years, 14 years or something like that. Um, but as pressure to expand these rights grew and the length of copyright has gotten longer and longer, uh, opposition to them mounted, and so the proponents of IP... I'm not sure exactly when this happened. I think it was you know, roughly 100 years ago. Started calling it property. It never had been considered to be property before. Even the founders didn't consider it to be natural rights or natural property. But 
it was labeled property as a propaganda technique because most people are in favor of property rights. So if you call something a property right, then people think, well, I guess it's part of the free market system. Uh, but, you know, if you, if you refer to the right to receive Social Security payments as a property right, it doesn't make it a real property right. <laughs> so the, the problem is that these things are derogations of property rights and people are dishonest. And, and even worse, they start using words like thievery or stealing or piracy to refer to things that have absolutely nothing to do with thievery, piracy, and stealing. The reason the law... Uh, outlaws stealing is because, and the reason people oppose it is because if you take someone's thing from them, they don't have it anymore. You've actually physically harmed them. Uh, or if you commit piracy, you're boarding their ship, burning their ship, raping their women, killing people, and taking their stuff. Um, and so these terms are used to apply to something that has nothing to do with that, which is people copying files. Now, if I copy a file from you, you still have the copy of the file. So I have really not stolen it from you. Uh, it, it is possible that I've made it more difficult for you to make a profit, but I haven't stolen the file from you. Maybe I've stolen the profit from you, but, the, but to argue that, you would have to say that you own the profit. But the profit is just money that you could get from a third-party potential customer. And you don't have a property right in customers' money. They do. And if they don't give it to you voluntarily, then you don't have a right to it. So if I deprive you of a customer, I'm not stealing anything from you. Just like if I put a drugstore up across the road from yours and I steal your customers, I haven't really stolen customers from you because you didn't own them. Or if I steal your girlfriend from you because I'm better looking or whatever, you might not be happy about it, but I haven't literally stolen her from you because you didn't own your girlfriend or you didn't own the right to keep her. Um, so we, we have these dishonest propaganda terms used to demonize something that is really inherently peaceful and actually a good action. Learning, emulating, copying, competing are good things and beneficial things for humanity. Well, I think you hit the nail on the head there, because certainly there is that attempt to try to make people think that this is something absolutely uh, akin to what's going on in the physical world with physical objects being stolen. And so we see the types of uh, advertising campaigns like you wouldn't download a car, would you? So why would you download a file? As if there is some sort of moral equivalency between stealing a physical object and copying and sharing files on the Internet. It's kind of... Uh, Interesting to see the way that they've elided that dis the, the the discrepancy between those two actions. Right, and you don't need government propaganda campaigns to tell people that you shouldn't steal cars. Everyone knows that you shouldn't steal cars. <laughs> it's obvious in that case. So why isn't it obvious in the other case? Why does the government need to tell us what should be obvious if it's really natural law? A good point indeed, yes. They don't need uh, all sorts of PR campaigns to try to tell people not to rob banks or something. Everyone knows that that is something wrong. So the, absolutely good points. Well, on that note, again, we will take a short break. We'll be back with Stefan Kinsella right after this. And again, if you want to get in on tonight's conversation, the phone lines are wide open, 1-800-313-9443. You're listening to the Republic Broadcasting Network because you can handle the truth.
intellectual property and all of the issues surrounding it is what we're covering tonight on Corbett Report Radio with our guest Stefan Kinsella of StefanKinsella.com and certainly one of the leading proponents and thinkers in the field of, uh, well, I guess against intellectual property and the concept of it. And uh, he has been writing about this issue for many, many years, including a, uh, a relatively old, but I think uh, even more relevant than ever article on lewrockwell.com in defense of Napster and against the second homesteading rule. And I think this is an important article to, to pick up from because, again, the homesteading argument is another one that's often used to defend the idea of intellectual property, the idea that uh, we, we come to own certain pieces of property by homesteading it. So the example, of course, would be, well, if you come across a patch of land that is not owned by anyone and you, you clear the land and you build a home on it and you start working the land, then it is your land because you have come to, to reside on it. And in the same way, people uh, would make the, uh, the argument that uh, the author of a work or the, uh, the film director or maker of a, a movie or what have you is the person who creates this, this idea, this thought, this whatever it is, an invention or whatever, out of, out of thin air, out of, out of their imagination. And once that act of creation happens, they then own whatever comes of that as if it's their property. So let's talk about the homesteading principle and how it fails to apply in the sense of uh, these realms of the realm of the idea. Sure, and I mean, let me say th- these issues are not easy. Um, I mean, they seem easy to me now because I've been thinking this way for a while. But it, it took a while for me to sort of sort it out, and a lot of people kind of see the light on this, and they. they but, but the problem is, if you come into it assuming property rights are good, human productivity is good, human ingenuity and creativity are good, individualism is good, and I agree with all these things, um, and the mind is good, right? And then you sort of have a vague understanding of the free market, and you understand that people make money, right? So we have this idea of creation already there. Um, and I think the mistake that is made is is in a sort of loose or sloppy um, formulation of where rights come from, and that is just saying that you own what you create. And the reason people say that is because, you know, this idea that you make money. And if you make products and sell them, that you are entitled to the money you make from selling them. But this is really just uh, almost like an equivocating use of language because you don't really make the products. You, what you do is you, you acquire ownership of scarce resources that are raw materials. And then you use your ingenuity and your intellect and your labor and your effort to transform them into a more valuable rearrangement of material. So you create wealth, but wealth is not property. Wealth is just how people value the things that you, you own or that you might sell to them. So, for example, if you, if you acquire some metal and you use your knowledge and your effort to shape it into a sword, now you have something that's potentially more valuable than the untransformed hunk of metal but you didn't create new property in fact you didn't create anything except wealth which is a more valuable shape but to own, to even to own the wealth that you created and to own the new property the new sword you had to already own the stuff that went into it so the the fallacy i believe is in thinking that there are three sources of ownership of property the common way of putting it is that well, if you find something, you know, you homestead something, something unowned in the wilderness or in the wild, in the state of nature, you know, you're the first person to pluck this apple or get a bucket of water from the ocean or, um, or 
or, or, or a plot of land. Then you own it because you found it or you're the first. Or if you buy it from someone, that is by contract. So that's the two ways. And then people will say, or if you create it. But that's actually not true. Creation is not a source of ownership of property at all. Um, creation is a source of increasing your wealth by transforming things that you already own. So the mistake there, and the mistake I think comes from Locke, John Locke's a little bit sloppy uh, conflation of the idea of labor. What he said was, if you mix your labor, he said we own ourselves because God gives us a property in our in ourselves, and the world is unowned. So if you so you own yourself, and therefore you own your labor. This is what Locke says. So therefore, if you mix your labor with some piece of unowned property, then you're mixing a part of yourself with it, and therefore you own that thing. The mistake he made, I think, is in saying that we own our labor. Labor is just an action. We don't own our actions. Our actions is what we do with the things that we own, including our bodies. Um, so he sort of went too far with a metaphor. And number two, I think Locke made a mistake in assuming that that step is necessary for his argument to work. In other words, I think you can take that step out and his argument still works. You don't need to say you own your labor to have a better claim over a resource that you were the first one to possess. You have a better claim over it because you were the first one to possess it, but not because you owned your labor. You don't even need to say that. Um, so if you recognize that and you recognize that libertarians have gotten confused about the role of creativity, it is a source of wealth, but it's not a source of property rights, then you realize that you don't own what you create. You only own what you find or what you buy from people. Absolutely. I think, and that's an awareness that is becoming more common as, as people start to think about these issues. But it's still one that I think tricks a lot of people because the idea, all of the strange things that can happen when we start talking about ideas somehow being owned by someone. I mean, there's a lot of bizarre things that can happen and in, uh, against intellectual property. You have lots of good examples of this, of, of, uh, people designing a better mousetrap, but, uh, another inventor who sees that, that new design and then tries to copy it would be violating the patent laws as they exist, even if there was no direct connection between that person and the, the person who invented the, the better mousetrap. I mean, really bizarre things like this. And I think one example that you gave in that book that's, that's extremely, extremely um, interesting was talking about the, uh, 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 the example of someone discovering oil on his property but not telling his neighbors about it. And, uh, and you develop that out into a scenario that on its face is quite absurd, but it goes to show the absurdities that can happen when we start saying that ideas can be owned. Perhaps you can talk a little bit about that. Well, yes. I mean, the point of that analogy uh, is, is, to, is to show the, uh, the, the problem of the very idea of owning information or ideas. Now, the advocates of IP say they're not in favor of owning all ideas, but but then they just have an arbitrary distinction. So they're in favor of owning some ideas, but not all ideas. And, and why, you, why Einstein could not own E equals MC squared, but someone else could own the application of that to making a transistor makes no sense whatsoever. Um, the, the analogy there was, and I, I just view all information as a guide to action, whether it's a complex recipe or a formula, a recipe in the economic sense of, a, of knowledge of how to make something happen, like how to make a rocket ship or how to make a better toaster or a better mousetrap. 
um, or the pattern of a book, you know, the, the letters that are arranged in a book that make up a Shakespeare sonnet or something like that. Um, this information is what guides human action. So in that respect, it's no different than any information, whether it's simple or trivial or minute or not. Um, and so the example there was, I said, you know, if you, if let's say I discover there's oil under my, my land and my neighbor's land and I only, I'm the only one who knows it. Well, if I start drilling, then all of my neighbors are going to know and they're going to start drilling too. And, um, if I could somehow buy their land from them first, then I could make more money because I, I own all the oil then. So I want to buy their land from them at a regular price before the price gets inflated because everyone knows they're sitting on uh, black black gold, you know. Um, but what if someone broke into my house, a trespasser, and they found out on my computer that I had discovered this oil field? Now they've committed a crime; they've harmed me. But if they go blab it to everyone else and it becomes public knowledge, then my neighbors now know something they didn't know before. Now. If you really believe in IP, you would have to say that, you know, I own that information because I didn't authorize anyone to get it, which means I could force them to sell me the land at the price they would have sold it to me before, you know, th this trespasser had spilled the beans, uh, which is absurd, of course. Uh, they, they're entitled to – they're, they're going to say, no, 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 no. I know there's oil now, so I'm, I'm going to sell it at a, ten times the original price uh, or I'm not going to sell it at all. So this example shows that if you really take IP seriously, you would have to agree to situations that would be absurd violations of people's property rights. Well, that's right, and that's exactly why they can't argue that all ideas are patentable or copyrightable, because, of course, then we'd have the absurd situation of, you know, anyone, anytime someone who builds a house would have to, to pay, uh, I guess, the descendants of the first person who ever built a house. I mean, all sorts of ridiculous things like that, which on its face would be unenforceable and, and ridiculous, and no one would go with it. But, uh, but if they just apply it to certain tiny sectors of society, they can seem to get away with it. But it is interesting to see the limits of that debate. And as we see the technology and the science developing in especially the health arena, we start to see some of these debates playing out. And as I alluded to at the top of tonight's program, the Supreme Court just this week has thrown out a lower court ruling that uh, was allowing human genes to be patented, yes. which I think everyone understands at a very base level is something quite, quite horrifying, but let's talk about some of those areas of where intellectual property is now really going down to the level of the genome. Well, yes, that, that was uh, an expected result um, in the wake of another Supreme Court case that came out um, a couple of weeks ago, uh, which, which cut back on some of these, um, these um, fundamental patents that it was a, med it was a medical type of patent. Um, and basically, the, the patent law has always said that you can patent anything anything under the sun that's known to man, but you can't patent certain laws of nature or abstract ideas, which is the reason why Einstein could not patent E equals MC squared. Not that he tried, but he couldn't have done that. Um, but someone who used that useful new formula and applied it to develop some transistor or something like that um, could could have. Uh, so there's always been an arbitrary distinction there. But so the question is, um, if you discover a way of uh, a way of treating, you know, a disease, which is a, in a way is a natural law. So what patent attorneys do is they just add what's called post-solution activity onto it. So they'll because they know they can't get a patent on the on the broad 
idea, but they'll apply it in a way. They'll say, so I claim, you know, determining who has this disease and then administering a drug to stop it. You know, something that's obvious given the first part, but just makes it a little bit more practical. Well, the court struck, uh, struck that down recently, and every, all the patent lawyers, all the biomedical patent lawyers are going crazy and saying this is apocalyptic and it's going to ruin billions of dollars of investment. Um, I wish it was apocalyptic. I wish it was a radical retrenchment of patent law. My view is it's going to re slightly reduce a small number of biotech-type patents, but it's not really that big of a deal. The, the fundamental problem is still there. Uh, but that ruling did imply that there's a problem with the genome patents, and so they, they remanded that back down to the, uh, the lower courts. But it could still be withheld um, uh, to some degree. In other words, some gene patents might still be possible, as long as they follow whatever new rules the courts say are permissible, they'll just be a little bit harder harder to get. The, the problem I have in this whole patent area is that whenever you point out an egregious problem like this, uh, or if you point out a problem where there's independent invention, which is very common, by the way, so two people, two or more people will come up with a similar idea around the same time, primarily because the idea's time has come. You know, technology in the supporting areas has gotten to the point where this idea is pretty much inevitable. Um, and so one guy gets a patent, the other guy can't do it. And even even when the second guy independently invented it, or even when he came up with it first, but he just failed to file a patent on it. So you point out these kinds of examples, people say, well, I'm not in favor of that. Uh, but the, so, so basically... They will say, well, my ideal patent system is one where every patent is granted by a perfect patent office that doesn't make mistakes and that has a perfect <laughs> access to you know, a, a perfect prior art database. And they know everything that's been going on. So the only patents we issue are those that are truly unique inventions that the guy that got the patent, he really was the first inventor. Um, but, okay, so let's say we have one-third the patents that we have now or one-tenth even. Well, that's still bad because what it means is you have a monopoly on this idea that someone else probably would have come up with in a couple of years anyway. But now they can't come up with it because you've, you've spilled the beans, and so now they're, they're just going to build on what you've done. Um, so the fundamental problem is not bad patents. The fundamental problem is good patents. Everyone wants to improve the patent system. They want to improve the quality of it. They want to uh, stop junk patents. They, they, they talk about patent trolls. This is not the problem. The problem is good patents. <laughs> this is what the fundamental problem is and will always be, even if you improve the system um, by pouring billions of dollars into it. Exactly right. Exactly right. And, of course, this is about the institutionalization and the shunting off into the ju judicial system of these, of these types of disputes. And, of course, it's always obvious who's going to win that type of dispute. So, so for example, I mean, the... the Biotech patents, I mean, really go back and rest on Diamond v. Chakrabarty of 1980, which ruled that, uh, that life forms could be patented, in this case, a genetically modified organism. And uh, from that, of course, we saw the entire rise of really the biotech industry. And then, uh, of course, the obvious example, Monsanto with their genetically modified crops. Mm -hmm. And then you, you start to get into the types of disputes like uh, with uh, Percy Schmeiser in Saskatchewan, Canada, who had his field infected by uh, Monsanto's crops and that then was sued by Monsanto for having had his crops infected. Yes. I mean, just ridiculousness like that. And, of course, the outcome of that is in 2008, Percy Schmeiser ended up quietly winning out of court, settling out of court, and uh, and Monsanto agreed to pay the fees to clean up his fields and all of that. But 
But uh, it took, of course, years and years and years and, and threatened to really bankrupt him and his family for that. So, unfortunately, this is another case where he who has the most dollars gets to really uh, determine who, who wields the stick of this patent law. Well, I, yeah, I agree completely. And, and uh, there are so many outrageous horror stories and and like i said i could i could give you a thousand of them literally i mean they're almost every day or every week you hear one of these and the copyright arena by the way is even worse copyright is used to censor it it is it is it is poised to arm the state to shut to control the internet i mean you know the sopa battle that happened recently which i know you've talked about um i, I think the internet is the greatest tool for freedom that we have and if the government can can regulate it and shut it down um, on the excuse of, of copyright. That shows right 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 there. That's enough to be opposed to copyright. That it's a huge argument that the government can use to regulate the internet. Um, but the, the patent cases are just so outrageous and so absurd. And what happens is the larger companies who are already artificially large, in my opinion, because of government um, manipulation, because of minimum wage laws and union legislation and even the corporation laws, I believe that does give rise to larger companies than would otherwise exist in a free market. So these already artificially large companies um, acquire patents, and that allows them to fight back against other big companies, but and they just settle with each other. So they form oligopolies because mm. smaller people cannot afford to fight back. They don't have any patents to shoot back with. That's exactly right, exactly right. Well, the answer to any given problem cannot be government-created monopolies. I think we can all agree. At any rate, we will come back to wrap up tonight's episode right after this short break. Broadcast friends, here we are in the closing moments of another edition of Corporate Report Radio here on Republic Broadcasting. And tonight we have been talking to Stefan Kinsella of StefanKinsella.com. Once again, the link will be in the show notes for tonight's episode in case you can't find it at CorbettReport.com slash radio. And uh, from there, you'll be able to find, of course, a list of uh, all of Mr. Kinsella's publications, uh, quite a lot on a wide range of subjects, not just intellectual property. But intellectual property really is uh, the, uh, the driving focus of tonight's episode, as it really is something that's becoming more and more a part of our, our everyday discourse, and uh, perhaps unfortunately so. But on the flip side, I mean, there are a lot of ideas coming out to support the, the, uh, the anti, uh, the, the, the opposed to intellectual property paradigm. So uh, on that note, uh, Stefan, what do you think about ideas like uh, the open source movement uh, as it has first manifested in, in software but is now moving into other areas? I mean, is this something hopeful? Is this something that we can build on as a way of creating a paradigm that's completely opposed to this IP paradigm? I think I think it is uh, to some degree. I mean, I think it's unfortunate that, I mean, if you didn't have copyright, you wouldn't even have to have open source software it just would would be meaningless because these things rest upon the idea of somehow granting a license and freeing up something that the government the government locks down uh, unfortunately um, I, I see two positive trends number one the, the worst IP is copyright I think it's far worse than patent patent just imposes I don't know maybe a 200 billion dollar a year tax on the US economy that that's kind of my rough 
rough guess, okay? Uh, so it's a tax. It slows down innovation and it hurts us, but it just imposes another tax. But copyright causes censorship and causes a lot of damage and it lasts so much longer. It lasts well over a hundred years. Um, but the good thing about it is unlike patent, it's fairly easy to evade copyright through technological measures nowadays. So, you know, with encryption and torrenting and things like this, yeah, the government's going to hang some people up in the public square to make an example of them, and it will chill some people from doing this, but they're not going to stop it. If they shut down Mega Upload, another one's going to ramp up the next day. If they shut down WikiLeaks, there's going to be another one um, the next day. And I also think that that um, a lot of artists um, are supporting the free culture type movement, which is sort of the artistic analog of the open source software movement. And, yeah, I think a lot of authors are now, and, and artists and creators are putting their work out there into the commons using creative commons and mechanisms like this. So I do think it's a good thing because it's making people realize that, hey, Cory Doctorow is making money doing this, and Louis C.K. just made a million dollars by selling his DVDs open source uh, with DRM-free for $5 a pop on his website. You know, uh, Lots of examples like this, uh, and also things like Kickstarter and other things that are helping people fund fund projects, micro-projects and uh, documentaries and even even uh, gadgets and movies and things like this. So all these things are making people more aware that it's possible to make money without relying on copyright. And when you start getting people to realize that, then they're more receptive to the idea that, well, maybe copyright's a bad idea because it's not helping anyone you know. It's only helping exactly. the big companies. You know. Including the uh, the authors and others out there. I mean, certainly the vast majority of the money that's paid in the current uh, system go towards the companies that are publishing and, and all of that, and very little gets down to the, uh, the the creator of the work. So, Absolutely. So I think we do have to, and now that we have the technology to reach people directly via the Internet, I think uh, independent creators have to, to embrace that paradigm. I don't, I don't see why they wouldn't. Well, again, just a fascinating topic, tons of work. I've been directing people to stefankinsella.com. Are there any other websites you'd like to throw out here? Oh, well, you can go to C4, the, the number 4, SIF.org, C4SIF. That's Center for the Study of Innovative Freedom. And on my site and that site, I have a link to like a six-course uh, six IP course I did for Mises Academy, which is free online, discussing these ideas in depth. So if anyone wants to follow it up, they can go there. Excellent. Thank you for joining us tonight. 